It's time for Branding Business, the only show that brings branding experts and corporate executives together to explore how branding your business can improve both your top-line growth and bottom-line performance. Brought to you by Rikus Baird. And now, here's your host. Well, welcome to Branding Business. My name is Alan Brew, and the topic of today's show is utilizing market research to drive brand and business growth. And my first guest today is Dr. William McElroy of Socratic Technologies, based in San Francisco. Bill, are you there? Oh, yes, I am, Alan. Thank you very much for having me. It's uh, nice to be with you today. Thank you for joining us. So, Bill, um, the whole topic of market research, uh, I know from personal experience, is a very confusing one. And I'm, I'm really interested in the way you've developed an approach that removes a lot of the old traditional methodologies and accesses information from the marketplace in a very intriguing new way. Can you just give us a bit of background about your company, Socratic Technologies, and what it is you do? Of course. Um, Well, we uh, were founded back in 1994, and one of the big things that makes uh, Socratic different than most uh, large traditional research agencies is that almost 100% of the research that we now do is via the Internet. Uh, And one of the things that makes our approach uh, quite a bit different than most traditional forms of research is that we use a great number of new interactive online tools that are far more engaging than simply the old questionnaires and the the check boxes and the fill in the blanks. Uh, We have a lot of things where people can go in and... uh, and play with the, uh, some of these tools. Many of them are animated. Uh, we do uh, things like collage building, which are all great old uh, traditional techniques. But what we're doing is we're really taking them well into the, uh, the new century uh, with updated uh, interfaces that is a lot more interesting for survey takers than some more traditional forms of research. Right. So the internet. So it's is 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 the internet really effective in reaching people uh, online? And uh, does it replace the old uh, techniques of the person with the clipboard? I mean, can you explain how it's different in in terms of its approach? Well, back in the early days, certainly there was a, a pretty good concern that you didn't have a tremendous number of people who were on the internet. But in the U.S. today approximately 88% of all U.S. citizens have some form of access to the Internet. Uh, And so to be able to contact them through a media that they are currently using very, very frequently, in fact, email and Internet and all the rest are people's now preferred forms of communication, it really is quite quite effective. And we uh, certainly uh, do keep track of those you know, subgroups that we can't necessarily find online. And there will always be a call for uh, some phone and some intercept. And, and of course, there will always be, always be focus groups. Uh, but for the most part, when you're doing uh, a more quantitative or uh, survey-based uh, program these days, the Internet is actually turning out to be quite, uh, quite good at mimicking the exact same findings we'll get through most other traditional uh, approaches. Mm-hmm. So you're finding the Internet is, an, is really an effective way of reaching people you want to reach and accessing the kind of audience you need to talk to. Yes, and once again, it really does 
depend specifically on what type of audience that you want. But if you are going for even very, very hard-to-find people, uh, you can usually find a certain number of them that will uh, take a survey online. And, of course, when you're not calling somebody on the phone, they can take the survey whenever it's convenient for them. So there's a lot of positive benefits to people who want to take part in, in research. Uh, and we do find people, actually, not even just here in North America, but all over the world. Uh, actually, one of the uh, uh, areas that is of keen interest to many uh, companies now are emerging markets like uh, China. Uh, and, uh, you know, of course, people would think, well, how could you possibly find, you know, the correct people in China? Well, actually, the the proportion of people in China who have Internet access, probably about 20% of their whole population, but that 20% is more than the entire population of the United States. So you have a lot of people to choose from. And in many cases, when you are reaching into uh, even developing markets, such as uh, India, Brazil, the people with the Internet access are also the people who have the disposable income that many companies want to market to. So in that regard, yes, the Internet is becoming an effective tool for reaching people all over the world. Mm-hmm. So how would you overcome the issue of spam, Bill? Uh, people are difficult to reach at the best of times. How would they know that you were trying to reach them and this would be a survey they'd be interested in taking? Excellent question. And uh, I think that most legitimate research agencies would never just send out a broad-based email. You always have to start with some sort of an acknowledged group that has said, you may contact me for research purposes. Many times we will work with our clients using their list of customers. In other cases, we will use professional societies and panels uh, that have people that are recruited either because they subscribe to a magazine or they're a member of a uh, frequent flyer program or any sort of thing where they're invited as a part of their subscription or their membership or something to take part in surveys from time to time. And so we always start with a list of people who have said, yes, you may contact me for these purposes, and then we find the ideal match. So in some cases, we have to go to some pretty um, obscure publications to get that permission. But once you are talking to them about a subject that's important to them, then and because they've already opted in, then you really aren't uh, um, as likely to be regarded as spam. But of course, we also follow uh, the can spam rules, which says that within an invitation, you have to say where you got their name and what you're going to do with the data. And, and establish a prior business relationship or a permission to contact so that people don't regard it as spam. Mm-hmm. So do you, do you find people are responsive, or do you get a good re- a response rate from uh, email? Well, the email invitations go out, and within the email invitation itself, there's generally a link to the online survey. Uh, and it depends, of course, on the audience. In some cases, if the company who is sponsoring the research is not a very key factor in people's lives, then you might get a response rate of anywhere from 1% to maybe 8%. But there's other groups that we work with. Uh, we run some very large uh, uh, panels of internal customers for companies like uh, Dunkin' Donuts, for instance. And for them, uh, when they send out a request for people to come in and talk about a subject that, that they would like to study, you get response rates of 65% 
So mm-hmm. and it really is going to depend on how much interest and affinity that the, the potential uh, survey takers have with the brand and with the topics. Well, we all like donuts, but what about uh, what about uh, industries and uh, companies who deal with business to business? Do you have the same kind of response rate there, or, or is it different? Well, once again, I think it depends. If you are dealing with a company that's providing a mission-critical component, and some of these can be very, very obscure, we can be talking about uh, chemicals, and we can be talking about, uh, you know, um, uh, integrated circuit components. We can be talking about electronics. Uh, many of these are at the OEM level, but it all is going to depend on how much, how critical that the brand and the topic is to the person who's taking it, uh, and that will determine their, their response rates. In some cases, you know, we deal with medical devices, and if we're going to certain people who are very interested in those, you can have a very high response rate. And others, you know, when you get into some very... Uh, infrequently purchased or not understood, then you might be lucky to get a 1% or 2% response rate. Interesting, Bill. So the Internet is a new tool to uh, reach people and conduct surveys and market research, but um, research is a wide, wide subject. I mean, people are familiar with parts of it. There is quantitative, there is qualitative. Can you just give us a sense of what kind of research you undertake and for what kind of client? Sure. Well, I think that, that, as you mentioned, there's a broad range of types of research. And in general, when you're just starting out, and let's, let's talk about branding because that is the, the core topic. When people are just starting out, either thinking about a new brand or repositioning an old brand, generally they'll start out with what are called more of the qualitative um, uh, exercises. And a qualitative simply means that you're not asking large numbers of people, that you're asking small numbers of people to think deeply about a subject. And these examples of which are typically like focus groups or in-depth one-on-ones, where you really talk through the subject with people who have some level of familiarity with the brand or the company or the industry. And then you get a broad range of opinions, but you don't have very large numbers so that you can't really project those out to the general market. So then after you've gotten more of the qualitative uh, data analyzed, you then would normally move into more of the quantitative phase. And this is more of the survey data where you're going to be talking to customers and or potential customers about their perception of the brands and the issues that are affecting uh, the company that's undertaking the research. Mm-hmm. As the quantitative is then analyzed, you get much more of the uh, projective techniques. 75% of the people in the market feel this way about something. And you can say that when you have very large sample sizes. But generally, when you're talking about the qualitative data up front, it's more like we get a sense that the majority feel this way, and then we use the quantitative survey data to go out and put an absolute number on it. Right. So, what kind of what kind of clients do you do this research for, Bill? I mean, the 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 quantitative is the one I understand where you reach out to a wider group of respondents to get um, project uh, projectable data, and that would help a business to do what? Well, I think that certainly as they're planning. Uh, any sort of a brand or market activity. And generally, the two large areas of research that Socratic is asked to participate in are anything that's related to product development and the Mm -hmm. branding around new products 
and about the, the, the brand itself and positioning and messaging, et cetera. So those are our two major uh, areas of focus. And uh, within Socratic, my particular background and my particular focus is in the B2B and high-technology world. So uh, within that entire range of clientele, we deal with everything from uh, high-technology chip manufacturers to networking companies to uh, manufacturers of computers and peripheral devices uh, to medical devices and, and quite frankly, also a lot of uh, B2B services as well. So within all of these, you know, our group tends to work with the B2B issues on, you know, where does our brand stand now? You know, where are there opportunities for the brand to transition to be something different or something new? And what other brands are currently occupying positions of such strength that we probably wouldn't have much luck going after that positioning if we tried to capture it? So those are the types of questions that generally we're asked to uh, answer. Interesting. And so, what about a new a new company that's uh, launching, or a company that's launching a new product or a new service in a, a new market? Is 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 does this work equally well with that kind of uh, issue? Well, when you're approaching the market with something that's brand new, your biggest enemy is the fact that you're brand new, and people are generally not very good at projecting out on things that are, are very, very unfamiliar to them. They're very good at reacting to things that they know, uh, but they are not very good at thinking outside of the box and projecting into future states. So in many cases, what we will do for something that's extremely new, that is not common or has not really been seen in the market before, is we'll often design a short movie uh, that will uh, illustrate exactly what it is we're talking about. And within these movies, we will uh, talk about, you know, why it's, you know, why, if there's any problems that this is uh, being uh, used to address, um, certain approaches that would be used to uh, change the way that you're doing a specific type of business. And throughout these, we try very hard not to make these into sales pitches, but more simply to really explain the concept so that people will understand what it is we're asking them to evaluate. And once they have that better understanding of the topic or of the concept or of the new product or of the new service, then we can go in and ask them more of the in-depth questions that we need uh, to really help uh, inform uh, the people who are working on the brand strategy. Interesting. So you can test the market in terms of its potential response to a new product or service through this technique. Yes. In fact, uh, oftentimes, as a part of these projective techniques, uh, we're asked to develop uh, price-demand trade-offs as well. So even if nobody really knew what the product was before the research, uh, we rely on a couple of, uh, of uh, psychological underpinnings which say that even if you weren't aware of something, you can pretty much judge its fair market value based on other things that you may be familiar with. And so we'll often go out and look at uh, price-demand curves, which largely say if you go out with a service at $500, what percent of the market would be interested in purchasing this service? Uh, versus if you went out at $1,000, does it cut the market in half, or do you only lose a little bit, in which case you should certainly go for the higher price point? So we're often asked, particularly in new product, new brand situations, to do that type of work, to give sort of a feel to the, the brand 
strategists and to the company, how viable is this new product in the context of the brand that we're, we're attempting to launch. Hmm. Very interesting, Bill. So um, that's from the uh, perspective of a new product, a new service in the marketplace. What about a, a large established organization like a, like a bank or a financial services institution that wants to look at the market in a new way and look at ways of segmenting the market to better serve certain segments or to focus on uh, the more profitable segments. Do you do any, any kind of research that looks at uh, that? Te- uh, absolutely. We, we, we certainly do. And within all of these financial services, high technology, there are often established brands that find themselves uh, either being not as differentiated from the competition as they would like, or there are new and emerging markets that no one has really gone after. And in many cases, what we will do is we will do what's called a baseline study to understand what those different uh, customer segments are in terms of their needs, their perceptions, who they're currently doing business with. And once again, that's one of those uh, techniques where we're attempting to find um, opportunities in the current market, uh, if there are uh, customer groups that are not currently being uh, served either completely or they're being served weekly by any of the brands that are out there. And that would be an opportunity for expansion, either for an existing brand or a new brand, to more uh, thoroughly meet the needs of a segment that is being underserved. So this really would be a way of looking at a market and finding new uh, potentially profitable ways to segment the market and move into uh, new areas of product development and uh, uh, and service uh, areas. Yes, and I, I think that what research can do is that they can identify the gaps and the holes and the lack of uh, of met needs. But then it really uh, goes directly hand-in-hand with the branding team to say, okay, how do we then take this information that there is an opportunity and act on it? And I think that certainly, you know, over the years, we, you and I have, have known each other for 15 years now. I think it's the concerted effort of being able to not only identify the opportunities, but then also come up with the actionable strategy to take advantage of those opportunities that really puts the whole package together. Well, as you say, Bill, we've worked together for some years now on, on many different kinds of uh, client and, and brand situation. Um, one thing that comes along every now and again is, is a client or a, a, um, a company saying, look, we have a new name and we have a, a, a new logo um, how best would, should we test this? Uh, often people recommend focus groups to test things like this. Um, what's your perspective on that? It, is, is, a, uh, is a focus group a good way of testing new names and logos, or would you recommend another way? Well, actually, um, I come from the school of thought that it is usually bad research to attempt to turn your customers into graphic designers and naming experts. Uh, and if you sit a group of people around the table and ask them directly, gee, what do you think of this name or what do you think of this logo, they're going to immediately try and put on a hat that they're really not all that qualified to do. They're going to tell you, well, you know, that logo needs to be a little bit more red. And, and that may be of interest, but it really isn't actionable. So in many cases, what we do is we use what's called an indirect methodology where we will look at several names and we'll say, of these names, which of these is the most professional or the most 
um, high tech or whatever we're trying to do. And so that we'll get a profile of attribute associations for each name in a more of a quantitative setting, and the name or the logo that has the greatest match to our objectives and what we're trying to uh, communicate actually becomes the way we choose, quote, a winner. To simply ask people to, you know, choose one, it becomes a very subjective exercise. And once again, uh, you know, we try not to turn our, uh, our very uh, honored customers, but ones that don't necessarily have the background, into uh, graphic designers and uh, naming experts. Mm -hmm. And very often on the client side, we're dealing with uh, people uh, or directors of research who are equally expert in the subject of research. How do you engage with people uh, on that level, Bill? Because we've got the research discipline on the one hand, and yet we're looking at a particular business issue, which is uh, more aligned with a perhaps a marketing initiative. Do you find yourself caught between the research expert and the marketing initiative on a, on, in a client situation? Well, normally when we go in, we try to explain exactly how we're going to do something and we more we rather than, than, than get into all of the very high level statistical analysis and that sort of thing, we focus more on the deliverables. What type of information are you going to get out of this process? And we work on, is this going to help you with your decision or not? And so largely we try and focus more on what does the key decision maker who needs to make a decision need in order to feel comfortable? And then that will then guide and inform the research design, the analysis, and the deliverables. And so we try and, and, and meet somewhere in the middle. But of course, our, our friends in research are always the ones who you know, are going to work with us on what's been done in the past, what they've tried, any standards that they are already familiar with, and we will, of course, work with them to incorporate that into whatever research that we're uh, recommending. Good. Thanks, Bill. Um, moving on to one of the last questions in view of our time availability here. I was wondering what kind of the, what are the typical pitfalls uh, to avoid when thinking about research? It's again, it's it's a subject that needs an expert point of view and an expert to undertake it. Um, have you ever advised a client not to undertake research, or if you have, what are the pitfalls you advise against? Well, I, uh, yes, I I tell clients not to undertake research all the time, which is probably not good for my business, but it does you know help you know, sleep at night. And I think that the key thing that you want to ask yourself is research going to help you make the decision. And in many cases, you know, we'll get into a situation where and for all intents and purposes, the the decision's already made. That this is just sort of like a going out to ask people their opinion just just in case. But the problem with that is is if you go out particularly to your clients and you ask them a question that you have no intention of taking action on if it comes back counter to what you're planning to do, my advice is don't, don't ask. If you're not going to take action on it and you aren't going to actually bring feedback into the decision-making process, don't bother asking because it's just going to annoy people and make them feel disrespected. So I tell people if that's the case, you probably just do it. And, and you know, if the decision's already made and you've already printed the packaging, I mean, it's a little late to, you know, worry about whether you should be in this market or not. And right. I guess the second thing um, in terms of uh, pitfalls, 
is I think that you really need senior management on board with the process. I, I think that some of the worst research nightmares have come along when the research team and the task force has been all diligently at work. They get everything together, and they go in, and senior management says, we're not doing that. We're going to do something completely different, and you've just you know, wasted everybody's time and money. So I think that the big thing is, is to make sure that the entire infrastructure of the company uh, particularly when it comes to brand, because that touches every single um, person from the CEO on down, to make sure that there's an alignment, that there is a need for brand work, and that what comes out the back end is going to be something that we can take action on. So those things are definitely part of what would have to be either taken into account or avoided. Great, Bill. So get the senior team on board from the outset and then work with them and make sure they're engaged all the way through. I know that you're also a good branding consultant as well as a research specialist, Bill, so I have no doubt that you can do that. If any of our listeners would like to reach you and have follow-up questions, what's the best way to get in contact with you? Well, uh, as was previously mentioned, we are headquartered in San Francisco. Our telephone number is 415-430-2200. And you can always reach me via my email, which is bill.mcelroy, M-A-C-E-L-R-O-Y, at Sotech, S-O-T-E-C-H, dot com. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Bill. You've been listening to Branding Business with Rikus Baird. And to learn more about our show, please visit brandingbusiness.com. There's something happening out there today. All across America, we're seeing encouraging signs of economic recovery. Businesses are once again thinking about new growth, and new opportunities are emerging. But it raises the question, is your company positioned to take full advantage of the economic recovery and the opportunities it presents? Maybe it's time to ask, how has the recession impacted your business model? Is your business as relevant as it once was? Should you consider entering new markets or expanding into new categories? And what do customers really value about their relationship with you? The golden thread through all these questions and the answer to each and every one of them can be found in just one place. Your brand. It's much deeper than your logo and much bigger than your advertising. Your brand is the enabler of your entire business strategy. Rikas Baird is a brand strategy firm that can help. They specialize in business branding. They've helped hundreds of companies from startups to Fortune 500 leverage their brands to drive growth. They can do the same for yours. It's really quite simple. Find out more, just visit brandingbusiness.com. That's www.brandingbusiness.com. And plant the seed for economic growth. Okay, welcome back to Branding Business with Rikus Baird. My name is Alan Brew, and our second guest today is Chris St. Hilaire, who is president of M4 Strategies and the author of the acclaimed business book, 27 Powers of Persuasion. Chris, how are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Chris, I know you uh, focus on a particular kind of research. First of all, tell us about your business and what your area of expertise is. Sure. Actually, and, and we own, uh, I own two companies. One is a Jury Impact. The other, you mentioned M4 Strategies. And really what those um, uh, companies have in common is we look at the evolution of message 
and 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 how people think, why they think, um, and then how they're persuaded. So, you know, in short, we really measure public opinion uh, through quantitative and qualitative research methodologies, and and we do that in an effort to influence public opinion, whether that be for um, a high stakes. A political campaign or a high-stakes trial, or even in many cases, um, uh, messages for, for corporations. So you cover um, the law, politics, and also marketing. We do, we do. And, and, you know, whether you call it a spin, as they do in politics, or you call it an angle, as they do in the media, or you call it your opening, as they do in a, uh, a courtroom, they're all essentially the same thing, which is telling a compelling story that's going to engage people and eventually persuade them. So, you know, really, it's not, they're not as disparate as one might think. They, they all share common principles. Really? That's, uh, that's interesting, Chris. Um, Can you really uh, influence public opinion through through research, or, or is that just a, um, you know, you think of uh, politicians saying things that they think people want to hear? Is is it a, a different kind of concept? Well, I mean, love them or hate them, you know, when you look at. The, the pillars of persuasion, they're all, uh, in, from, a, from a macro level perspective, they're the media, they are uh, uh, the political environment, they are high stakes trials, and, and, and they are, you know, marketing something I know you're, expert at, you're an expert at. And what, what you'll see is that, that people can be persuaded, but it's getting harder and harder to get their attention because we live in a branded society. You can't, you can't get on an airplane without um, watching an advertisement over of, you know, when they're showing a movie. You can't get on an elevator without uh, some news being broadcast to you. And if you filled up your tank at a gas station lately, you've more than likely seen someone spitting out commercials from the pump. So, you know, every part of our society, especially our American society, is branded. And so your ability to break through is getting more and more difficult. So what we do is more important than ever because we help you break through. Um, and you can't persuade someone until they're listening. Our goal is, one, to help you help them listen or break through the noise, and two, um, eventually persuade them. So, Chris, what kind of research techniques do you employ to reach people? As you said, it's the attention economy. And how we get people's attention today in this over-communicated world is the, is the key question. How do, you re how do you reach people? You know, well, you've got to understand mindsets. And so when we're working on a high-profile trial, for example, if it's being held in um, uh, Nashua, New Hampshire, you can't do research in, in San Diego, California, because mindsets are likely different. You're going to have different income distributions, different age distributions, different mindsets based on, you know, one's close to the Mexican border, one's close to the Canadian border. And so, you know, our, we, we each bring certain um, life experiences to the table. And, and so understanding those through qualitative and quantitative research are fundamental because you can't really persuade someone if you don't know what their mindsets are, what their push buttons are, what their interests are. And in the end, you know, a, a very wise person once told me that, that it's always easiest to persuade someone of something they already believe. And so if you walk into the 
uh, Democratic National Committee, for example, and say, let me tell you why George Bush was a terrific president, it doesn't matter what you say after that. They're going to tune you out because they because you've played against their fundamental predispositions. And I could say the same thing for the Republican National Committee and, and, and Barack Obama. And so mm-hmm. understanding those mindsets, understanding the, the, the playing field is what we do. And we do that in a number of ways. It's, you know, they're, they're really multi, multi-modal methodologies. And that's a fancy way of saying, you know, there's, there's quantitative phone surveys, quantitative internet surveys. There's methodologies for interviewing people one-on-one. There's qualitative focus groups. We employ all of those things. And what we insert really is a, a, a creative bent to it all so that um, we're, we're finding creatively how to understand people's uh, fundamental mindsets and then align them with whatever uh, message that we're trying to promote. So giving, giving, giving our clients the best chance um, at trial or in the marketplace or in a political campaign of eventually persuading their audience. So once you've established what people think, Chris, how do you then formulate a message that will persuade them around a particular direction you want them to go in, in terms of your client? Well, I mean, I mean how you say things is, is fundamentally important. And, you know, the essence of an idea, um, the, the merit of that idea, that, I, that's, that comes from a creative place that I don't think anyone's ever pinpointed. But mm. when you look at the ability to deliver a message, even from a, a one-on-one perspective, I, I hear all the time people say, I don't disagree with you. Um, and the next word out of their mouth is going to be, but, and the listener's programmed to hear that, but, and then they, and then, and then it sounds like you're creating discord, like you're about to tell them what's wrong with their idea. You can say to someone very, just as easily and make the same point afterwards, I agree with you and, and now you've just set them up to be right. So the way you deliver those messages, how you say, um, how you transition to whatever message you eventually want to deliver is is really key to persuasion, and it's just one more component of what we do. Interesting. So it's part psychology and use of language as well as the particular content of the message. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, I think it's a great way to put it. When when you look at persuasion, it's 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 both an art and a craft. And so the art, the essence of, is what I call really the essence of your idea. And, and good ideas many times are delivered poorly, and, and it decreases their, their chance of success. And whether that's because it's the wrong messenger, whether that's because um, uh, they're using some of the, that they're not using appropriate language to get people to listen, or they're not understanding egos uh, when they're delivering a message, especially to groups, they, those create context for failure and and so what we're trying to do is set up a context for success so it's really built in into different parts one understanding your audience two getting people to open up and then three the actual persuasion and and we help there as well with with respect to language with respect to techniques with respect to um uh, mediums and and all the different places you can communicate and persuade i'm presumably chris this would extend into the realm of uh corporate marketing. I can think of a few kinds of industries that could utilize this kind of approach to the marketplace, in particular, perhaps oil, oil companies who are currently having a, a controversial time of it. it would, would this extend into helping 
uh, clients in, in th- that kind of industry? Yeah, it would. And, and there are times when, you know, BP oil spill, for example, they're, they're, they're not going to persuade everyone overnight that they are a fantastic company right after that incident. And they could have the very best uh, marketing campaign known to humanity. In the end, people are going to look at, you know, the, 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 the facts of what happened. They're going to look at the situation and they're going to listen to other message carriers, likely every media outlet in America reporting the devastation that, that occurred in the Gulf. And so, um, you, 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 persuasion doesn't always happen overnight, but you could have made, they could have made a bad situation much more much worse depending on how they responded publicly, uh, both in terms of their actions and then how they communicated them to them. And, you know, oil companies um, uh, are not at the, the top of everyone's happy list right now for, you know, obvious 4 to $5 a gallon reasons and, um, and, and helping them understand how to communicate um, is, is really important in, in uh, explaining gas prices and, and why we're in the situation we're in. And do you find, Chris, that when you work with a company or a politician or uh, an attorney and a client and uh, assess the marketplace, assess the temperature and the, uh, the, the prejudice out in the marketplace, do you find that the client is willing to work with you along the recommended lines or do you meet resistance? You know, it's, it, it's both and, and part of that is my ability to communicate to them the benefits of, of what we do. And, you know, if we can't sell ourselves, then I wouldn't want them hiring us to help help sell and articulate their message. Right. And so we, we talk yes. about persuasion. Uh, we talk about how people form opinions. <clears throat> we talk about specifically what it is that, that we can bring to the table quantitatively and qualitatively. And then we, we go get third parties to help deliver our message. And you know, essentially what that means is, is we'll find testimonials of, of, of happy customers. So that's one way to bring them in, and, and that's something actually in my book is the importance of third-party credibility. So we try to use all the methodologies and all the tactics that we recommend on a daily basis uh, when, we're, when we're talking to clients about, about what it is we do as well. Tell us about your book, Chris. It seems that your experience in corporate America um, has had an impact on the content and thinking behind your book, which is The 27 Powers of Persuasion. Um, tell us about how it, the, the book came about and where, what the genesis of the concept was. You know, the, 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 in the, I think the genesis, um, I think, started when I was nine years old and I, I watched how poorly my, my parents communicated. And it, it may not be a, you know, an outward... Um, it may not be an idea that's come to fruition yet, but I, it's, it's been a topic that, that's been at the top of my mind as, as long as I can remember. And so I majored in communications in college, but, you know, it, I would hear theory after theory and study after study. Uh, and what struck me was that none of the professors that were um, teaching classes ever had skin in the game. They never really gave us practical strategies or practical examples or real-life uh, times when they used the strategies, and it, and it seemed very sterile to me. And, and so I got into politics, um, ran political campaigns for many, many years, and, um, and, and then learned the everyday tactics, uh, both uh, you know, experientially and, and um, uh, through studies and, and other quantitative methodologies. 
in the end, what this book does is try to give very practical examples, very practical ideas for day-to-day persuasion. Because in the end, persuasion uh, isn't, isn't manipulation. Those are two very different things. Persuasion is actually very noble. It's, it's creating consensus from conflict or, or no idea at all. And, and so, you know, your ability to persuade and get everyone on the same team and marching the same direction can, can really help you move mountains, um, not only for yourself, but, but for society in general. If, if the essence of your idea, the art that I, I referred to earlier, is, is um, uh, uh, moral and ethical and all the good things that we want great persuaders to be. Mm. And obviously, in the title of the book, there's 27 powers. Are, are, are there really 27 powers? And can you tell us something about those in individual powers that you that can be utilized to persuade? Sure, and, and, and I'll try to keep it practical as well. So I'll give you one. And there, there's some philosophical components uh, to the book, and then there's some very practical chapters. Um, even within the philosophical chapters, components within the book, we try to give practical examples of, of ways to implement. And so, you know, um, understanding the ego and the nature of the ego um, is, is really fundamental to, to one-on-one and group persuasion. And, and what, I, what I mean by that is that you, what you have to realize about your listeners is that they have egos and they want to be right. And, and when we talk about ego in the Western um, context, it's, it's generally it's a static issue, where as in the Eastern philosophical context, the ego is really the push and pull between the spirits. So we have the spirit that says we're, we're all alike. Um, and, and we all want the same things. You know, I have children, he has children. We all want to um, create success together. And then you have the, uh, the ego, which says, I drive a nicer car than you. I make more money than you. Um, and, and, and they're always in conflict. And understanding that and mitigating that, both your ego and theirs, allows you to build consensus and create unity. And, and, and so one thing I counsel people is to say, uh, from my perspective, when you're about to give an opinion. And we all know the person that says, uh, let me tell you how it is. That is one of the worst ways to influence a room. Because let, let me tell you how it is means that my opinion's right, yours is wrong, let me state it, and, and so we can get on with it. And that drives discord, and that makes other egos feel, I, would, I wouldn't even say undervalued, I would say no value. And, and so when you say from my perspective, uh, and I would counsel people to try it even one time, say from my perspective, because it allows, it allows you to state your opinion um, without negating other people's opinions. And what you'll find is, is that it, it creates unity because it, it, it allows people to um, uh, feel free to state their opinion as well. And so it, one, helps them be more open to yours, and second, um, feel valued and part of the discussion when they deliver theirs. That's fascinating, Chris. So um, use of the of words such as but and... Um Use of phrases like "from my perspective" are the wrong and right ways to actually connect with people. Then you can persuade them, right? And and if somebody, I mean, you, you can it can be an issue. And I and I and I don't counsel people to get tricky. There's no reason to get cute. But if you've got a genuine idea, you want to create the best context for that idea to be heard. And so, you know, if 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 when someone says, "I think we should go with the iPhone for our company phones," I say, "I think that's a great idea," and we should also consider the Android. 
and 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 or I could someone says I think we should I think we should have the iPhone for our company phone. I could say, well, I, I don't disagree with you, but the Android is better. Mm-hmm. And and all I've done is set up a context for a debate rather than a discussion. And and using the former allows people to allows their idea to feel valued and my idea to be placed on the table from an equal an, an equal footing and and pushes you closer to the to the goal of persuasion. Hmm. Have you developed any particular tools or applications, Chris, that would help uh, people listening? Yes, the short answer. It, it, we've developed an, uh, an iPhone application, which, um, which will be on the market in the, actually the next week, which we're very excited about. And, you know, the, the nature of communication, the nature of um, virtually all types of communication are, are going mobile. And so, uh, you know, 20 years ago, the way that you'd survey quantitatively, and quantitatively means I know plus or minus five points or, or some number how people feel about an issue, but that the way that they'd field those surveys was on home phone lines. And you could get a very good survey done that way. Nowadays, you can't get people to answer their home phones, and many young people don't have home phones at all. And so the... the the medium has shifted to the computer, but even getting people to sit down now for 20 minutes to take a survey is getting more and more difficult. So we've developed an application called uh, Surveys on the Go, which, mm-hmm. which users can download and take surveys, the beauty of which uh, you get paid to take. So you'll get $5 to share your opinion, but for our clients, it's much more instantaneous way because no matter where you are, we can send a push and, and talk to the, the demographic they want to talk to um, in, in almost real time. So our users get compensated for taking surveys. We can put controls um, and, and get surveys done much more quickly for our clients and, and get feedback and advice uh, that much sooner. Thanks, Chris. If you had a wish list uh, in terms of the, the, the kind of client that you'd like to work with that you're not currently work with, is there any, anybody or any company out there that you'd really like to uh, find the, the opportunity to work with? It's, it's really diverse for a, a set of clients for us. And as you can tell by our background, we have a, we have a, a, a relatively unique uh, way of looking at persuasion and, and research. And so, um, when, when we when we look at our client wish wish list, it's it's so varied that that um, uh, you know if I were to go out and say tomorrow here are the corp here are the companies we'd like it, it it it's difficult. I can tell you we work with you know General Electric. We work with um, you know we worked with Walmart. We've worked with presidential campaigns, and and so we like to work with sophisticated clients um, that 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 have an appreciation for um, uh, high-value research methodologies. And so really, that, that, that's, our, that's our target audience. I've said for years, we don't want to be the biggest communications firm in America. We want to be the most sought-after communications mm-hmm. firm in America. And, and you do that by delivering creative um, uh, results on time and, and, and with a passion, which, which we have. And it wouldn't be for just for individuals or companies with a problem. Uh, you know, I tend to think of crisis communications when I think of you know persuasion and um, extraordinary uh, measures to communicate. But it seems to me that this 
is more of an ongoing campaign to get your point of view out there on a, on a consistent basis. Would that be a correct assumption, Chris? Yeah, and, and I've seen, you know, in, in presentations from your firm where you'll show a, a, a shoe with a Nike swish and ask, ask, uh, ask your audience how much that shoe's worth, and then you remove that swish and, and ask the audience how much it's worth, and 80% of the value disappears. So, you know, the, the, the importance of brand um, is, is really the art of persuasion. And you do that um, on a daily basis through repetition, through messages, and um, that 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 break through the noise and inspire people to to seek out and and want your brand. And and that's a day to day activity. That doesn't happen only when there's a crisis. As, as a matter of fact, if you're waiting for a crisis, you're you're, you're probably too late. Excellent point, Chris. We're coming towards the end of our time. Is there anything or any? Uh Final insights you'd like to share with our listeners? Really, I would I would just reiterate that that persuasion is is an art and a craft, and you may have the best idea in the world, but you need to communicate that effectively, and that 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 begets research. That requires research because uh, too often people assume they know what their their audience is thinking, and even if you're right eighty percent of the time, that twenty percent can bite you. And, and, and understanding the perspectives of the audience you're trying to reach is fundamental to your success um, every time. I love the, the, the thought of the context for success. Uh, Chris, how would uh, people get in touch with you if they had any follow-up questions or wanted to uh, uh, engage you? I would, I would direct them to our, um, to our website, which is www.m the letter uh, for the number strategies, S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-E-S dot com. And, uh, and then they could probably pick up my book at uh, 27 Powers of Persuasion at, at any Barnes & Noble or, or, or the few borders left. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Chris. It's been a fascinating conversation, and uh, I've really enjoyed talking with you. Uh, you've been listening to Branding Business with Rikus Baird, and to learn more about our show, please visit brandingbusiness.com. You've been listening to Branding Business, the only show that brings branding experts and corporate executives together to explore how branding your business can improve both your top-line growth and bottom-line performance. To hear more, simply visit our website, brandingbusiness.com, or tune in next week to learn how you, too, can build your brand and move your business forward. Brought to you by Rikus Baird.